Welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 13. Just as a reminder, every day I read from one chapter of God's Word, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's get to our reading today from Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both a man and a beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to you and your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat of unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. That the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall thereby keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that it first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that the first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the verge of the on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went up before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. 
The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Well, this is our reading today from Exodus chapter 13. You know, to study Exodus is to learn the theology of salvation. The true story of Israel's escape from Egypt, it demonstrates many great doctrines of the Christian faith. For example, it teaches us about sin and judgment. When God sent his plagues against the Egyptians, he was judging them for their sins. The Exodus teaches election. God rescued the Israelites because they were the people of his own choice. It teaches substitutionary atonement. God's people were saved by the blood of a lamb offered in their place and for their sin. This was also a propitiation because the blood turned aside God's deadly wrath. The Exodus teaches the communion of the saints. The Israelites shared Passover, and as they did, they remembered the God of their salvation. The Exodus even teaches sanctification, because God told them to sweep away the yeast that represented their old life of sin. The Exodus gave Israel nearly a complete theological education. Hardly a single doctrine was left out. Well, another pillar of the doctrine of salvation is introduced in chapter 13, the doctrine of redemption. And this chapter gives instructions for the redemption of sons. Like Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this ritual was to remind the Israelites how God saved them from Egypt. Their rescue was a redemption. In other words, it procured their release by the payment of a price. Redemption helps complete our understanding of the Exodus. And it also, it helps us to appreciate our own salvation. Because this doctrine has so many connections to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Scripture says in Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.13 and 14, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the redemption described in our chapter today is the redemption of sons. This goes back to something Moses said to Pharaoh even before the plagues in Exodus 4, through 23 This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And so the Exodus from Egypt was a redemption of Israel, God's firstborn son. And to help his people remember their redemption, God gave them a special tradition. It began with the recognition that every son belonged to the Lord, as we see in the first two verses of our chapter today. God was claiming his right to Israel's offspring, as he would do again in Exodus 22:29. You see, God commanded the Israelites to dedicate their sons to him. The reason was that they belonged to him in the first place. God's command specifically concerned Israel's firstborn sons. Now, this obviously bears some connection to the 10th plague, in which God struck down the firstborn of Egypt. In some cases, if there's any doubt, this connection is made explicit in verse 15 of our chapter. And so, in order to explain redemption, fathers were supposed to give their sons a history lesson. And it was not just Israel's firstborn that belonged to the Lord, but also the firstborn of Egypt, who were claimed by the angel of death. Firstborn sons were important in the ancient world as they are in many cultures today because they signified the center and the future of the family. The eldest son had special responsibilities and special privileges, including the right of inheritance. But God was not showing favoritism. The point of consecrating the firstborn was really to show that the whole family belonged to God. The firstborn represented all the offspring, including the girls as well as the rest of the boys. The firstborn stood for the family as part of representing the whole, the way, for example, that a captain representing his team at the beginning of a football game or an executive represents his corporation at the bargaining table. 
the same principle applied when the Israelites brought the first fruits to the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23.16 and Exodus 23.19. They offered their first and their best to show that the whole harvest belonged to the Lord. And in the same way, the firstborn was the firstfruits of the family. And so to consecrate him was to consecrate everyone else who came from his mother's womb. This helps explain why God was so angry with the Egyptians. Pharaoh had tried to kill Israel's sons by drowning them in the, in the Nile in Exodus 1, 15-16. And not only was this a vicious attempt at genocide, it was also a rejection of God's paternal rights. Pharaoh was trying to take over God's prerogative, and in the end he was punished with the death of his own firstborn son, just as God had warned him in Exodus 4, 23. And by afflicting the Egyptians with death, God was not being vindictive or throwing some kind of temper tantrum. On the contrary, he was rightly and justly defending his right to be a father to his sons. God was claiming this same right over all of his sons and over all of his daughters. He is our father by virtue of creation. As our maker, he deserves our worship and our obedience. Now, near the end of his life, Moses asked in Deuteronomy 32, 6, Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? The answer is an overwhelming yes. Our father God is our creator. We are his children by creation, which gives him the right to receive all of our praise. But we also belong to God by salvation, which was the point of the ritual for redemption. See, God not only made us, but he also saves us. And this gives us all the more reason to give our whole lives to his service. God is our rightful father, both by creation and by redemption. Now, at the time of the Exodus, the Israelites acknowledged God's rightful ownership by dedicating their firstborn sons. But you see, God wanted them to remember their salvation forever. And so he had them continue this practice even after they reached the promised land, according to Exodus 13, 11 through 13 and Exodus 34, 20. Now, the Israelites were commanded to give their offspring to God. They were to give over, literally to pass over their firstborn. But what does this mean? Well, specifically, how were they to give their firstborn to God? Well, you see, in the case of the animals, this, this meant offering the firstborn as a sacrifice. The instructions for this are given in the book of Numbers, in Numbers eighteen seventeen. Now, no sooner had Moses given the instructions for donkeys than he went on to say this in Exodus thirteen thirteen: Redeem every firstborn among your sons. The comparison is well worth reflecting on. Donkeys were unclean. This was not so much a matter of hygiene as of spiritual principle. God divided the animals between clean and unclean in order to teach his people how to distinguish between the sacred and the secular, the holy and the unholy. And by setting certain things apart as holy to the Lord, the Israelites learned that they too were set apart for God's service. But here in Exodus 13, God places his people in the same category as donkeys. This showed them that they were sinners in need of salvation. In a word, they need to be redeemed. Otherwise, they would perish as donkeys did if they were unredeemed. So no matter how unclean they were, the sons of Israel belonged to God and thereby they need to be handed over to him. Well, how was this done? Not, of course, by child sacrifice. Many ancient cultures did practice human sacrifice, usually by passing their children into the fire. For example, as we see in 2 Kings 16.3. But this was strictly forbidden in Israel, according to Deuteronomy 18.10. 
It said some Israelites give their children to God by dedicating them to work and worship at the temple. This was done by the Levites who were required to consecrate their sons to the priesthood, but it was done by others as well. The best example is Hannah, who vowed that if God ever gave her a son, she would give him to the Lord all the days of her life, according to 1 Samuel 1.11. And after her son Samuel was born, she took him to the tabernacle and said, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked for him. And so now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given to the Lord, according to 1 Samuel 1.27 through 28. Dedicating a child to priestly service was one way to give him to the Lord. God commanded the Israelites to redeem their firstborn sons, and that required the payment of a price. Now, Exodus does not specify what that price was. Perhaps God assumed that his people would make the same offering they made for donkeys, a sacrificial lamb. If so, then this was a further example of salvation by substitution. The son was redeemed by a replacement, one who died in his place as a substitute for the unacceptable. So once again, Exodus points us to the cross of Christ, according to Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And so to say that Jesus is our Redeemer is to say that he died in our place and for our sin. But if he is not a Redeemer, then we will perish like the donkeys that were broken at the neck. Well, later God gave priests more specific instructions for the redemption of sons. He specifies these instructions in Numbers 18, 14 through 16. And so the price of redemption was set at five shekels of silver to be paid at the temple. And this it helps explain what Mary and Joseph were doing when they took their firstborn son to Jerusalem. His name was Jesus, and they took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it's written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn is to be consecrated to the Lord in Luke 2, through 23 Now, Mary and Joseph were devout Jews who obviously knew what the law required. They were familiar with Exodus 13, 1, which is a verse quoted in Luke's gospel. Jesus did not need to be redeemed, of course, but it was necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness, and so his parents kept the right of redemption. Furthermore, his whole life was dedicated to serving God the Father. Jesus is very clear about this in John 6, 38, when he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. How proper it was then for his earthly parents to give him over to his heavenly father at the time of his birth. And so from the beginning to the end, from the manger to the cross, and then to the empty tomb and the right hand of God, Jesus was dedicated to serving God in the salvation of sinners. And so the act of dedicating and even redeeming a son must have made a powerful impression on the child's parents. Here they were, they're just beginning to raise a family, and one of the first things that they were to do is to consecrate their offspring to God. Now, if God had simply taken their firstborn, he would have been well within his rights, and yet he provides a way of redemption. By means of a substitute through the payment of a price, the son they offered up was given back for God's service. The ritual of redemption helped parents understand that their children really did not belong to them at all. It belonged to God. And so one way Christian parents learn the same lesson is by presenting their child and dedicating them to the Lord. As they hand their offspring into the arms of the church, they acknowledge their dependence on God's grace for their child's salvation. And when they receive them back, it is not because they own them, but because they, entrusted them with, they have been entrusted with them for the glory of God. 
Well, the problem with some of us is that sometimes we want to remake children, our children, in our own image. And whether we realize we're doing it or not, we, we may try to get our children to fulfill our unsatisfied desires. But children do not exist for our own benefit. We are to give them over to the Lord. One man who understood this was Abraham in Genesis 22. Indeed, it is hard to think of the redemption of sons and not think of Abraham's example. God told Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Abraham did as he was told, and it was not until he raised his knife to slay his son that God intervened by providing a substitute. And so the way the rest of the Israelites learned this lesson was by consecrating their children to God at birth. And by redeeming their sons, parents learned that children are meant for God and for his glory. And then they had the responsibility to explain this principle to their children. Moses gave them this teaching in Exodus 13, 14 through 16. Now, one reason God gave his people so many ways to commemorate the Exodus, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the consecration of the firstborn, was so they would have plenty of opportunities to give their their children the facts of salvation. The redemption of sons was part of their national testimony. It pointed back to Israel's great escape when the Egyptians paid for Israel's redemption at the cost of their firstborn sons. The right of redemption was assigned to the son that he had been saved by grace alone. It showed him that someone else had paid the price for his sins. It also made clear that he did not belong to his parents or even to himself, but to God. This was part of the meaning of the Exodus. Today, many children spend their lives struggling to get free from their parents. They're determined not to be controlled by their mothers and fathers, but to live the way they want to live on their own terms. Often they assume wrongly that that they should own and even operate themselves, but we were not made for our own pleasure or our parents' pleasure for that matter. We were made for God's honor, for God's pleasure alone, and we will not find joy until we commit our lives to him. And, And when it comes to deciding how to live, knowing whom we are made for, it makes all the difference. As we make choices about what to look at, how to use our bodies, with whom to spend time, and everything else, our primary concern is not to please ourselves or our parents, but to please the God who saved us for his own honor and for his own glory alone. And now what was true for the sons of Israel is true for believers today. We have been redeemed. Amazingly, we have been redeemed by the very son of God, the firstborn of the father. The Bible calls Jesus Christ the firstborn over all creation in Colossians 1.15, the firstborn from the dead in Revelation 1.5. This does not mean that God the Son is not eternal, as if somehow the Father gave birth to him. What it does mean is that Jesus is God's number one son, the firstborn of all his sons and daughters, and, and the first to be raised from the dead. And the amazing thing is that in order to redeem us, God offered up his firstborn son, not to be redeemed, but to be the redeemer. Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, we have been redeemed at the greatest price possible. Redemption always requires the payment of a ransom, but in this case, we have been redeemed by the blood of his very son, as 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says. And so when the New Testament speaks of redemption in Christ, it invariably emphasizes the costliness of its price. One implication of this high-priced redemption is that we no longer belong to ourselves. No, we belong to God. In Exodus, redemption was closely connected to consecration. The point of being redeemed was to be set apart for the service of God. The same is true within redemption in Christ. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, as 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says. 
A great price has been paid for our redemption. It has been paid by God himself in the person of his son, and now we belong to him forever. Everything we are and have belongs to the Lord. Our time, our money, our bodies, our talent, every single thing. Redemption is very costly. It cost God, It was costly to God. And in a way, it is costly for us as well because it demands everything that we are. But it is also the source of all our security and the basis for all of our hope. In fact, it's the beginning question the Heidelberg asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, at the cost of his own blood, has fully paid all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, the Heidelberg says, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly and willing and ready from now on to live for him. Well, the doctrine of redemption has one further implication. The Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers in Romans 8, 29. It also describes God's people as a church of the firstborn in Hebrews 12, 23. This means that everyone who has been redeemed in Jesus Christ belongs to the family of God. The purpose of redemption is to make us all God's sons and daughters, the children of the Heavenly Father. There is no higher privilege than to be a child of God through the redemption of sons. And we should know because we we too received a message from a far place assuring us that by virtue of our redemption in Christ alone, we belong to the royal house of God. Jesus has a plan to elevate us all to greatness. We are in his thoughts and prayers every day. He is working with every ounce of his being to restore us from the sad exile to the glory to which we are entitled by the grace of God. Now, God is not merely a character in the grand drama of redemption. He is its author, he is its producer, and he is its director. Never was this more obvious than on the day Pharaoh finally decided to let God's people go. What happened that day revealed several great truths about God. First, it showed that God always knows the way that is best, as he says in Exodus 13, 17 through 18. God's people here are starting down the road to freedom. They were bound for the promised land, and that being ca the case, one would expect them to head north along the way of the sea. That coastal highway was one obvious escape route. One Egyptian papyrus, Anastasia V, describes how two runaway slaves were caught trying to escape in that very direction. It was the most direct route. In fact, if the Israelites had headed straight for Canaan, they would arrive there in less than two weeks, rather than the 40 years it eventually took them. That would have been the shortest way, but it was not the best way because it was not God's way. God knew that if the Israelites stayed near the sea, they would face fierce resistance. Northern Sinai was a militarized zone in those days. The Egyptian army maintained a strong military presence in the region, protected by a series of fortresses and a long, wide, deep canal. There was also the Philistines. And then even if the Israelites somehow managed to fight their way through, they would still have to face the Canaanites when they reached the promised land. God knew that the Israelites were in no shape to fight. They were not prepared to face such strong opposition, either spiritually or militarily. They were not armed for battle, as verse 18 of our chapter today says. What the verse actually says is that they left Egypt in formation. They may have been fully equipped, but they were not ready to wage war. In fact, they would have turned and run back to Pharaoh at the first sign of danger. This was confirmed the following year when they finally reached Canaan. As soon as they saw how strong their enemies were, they were completely 
completely demoralized. They said, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt in Numbers 14.4. And knowing all this, God changed course and led the Israelites in exactly the opposite direction. He took themselves away from Canaan into the wilderness. Now, this is not the most obvious way. It was not the shortest way. It was not even the most direct way. But it was the best way because it was God's way. God knew what his people could handle, and he knew that they needed to take the long way home. And as the Israelites traveled that long and winding road, they often doubted whether God's way really was the best way. But God knew what he was doing, as he always does. And so, whatever God happens to be doing right now, do you believe that it's all for the best? It may not seem that way, but it is. Because scripture says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose in Romans 8, 28. And so even when we are tempted to doubt whether God knows what he's doing, we are still called to believe that his way is the best way. And a second great truth is that God is always faithful to his people. And we've already seen that the Israelites did not leave Egypt empty handed, but they carried off loads of fancy clothes and shiny jewels. And they carried off something else, according to verse 19. They took away Joseph's bones. And it may seem strange to carry the the remains of the dead. In this case, a mummy embalmed by the Egyptian masters. And yet, this was something the Israelites had promised to do centuries earlier in Genesis 50, 24-26. Joseph believed that God was faithful. And, and the Bible says in Hebrews eleven twenty two, By faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. He, he had been told that his descendants would become slaves in Egypt, but he also knew that God would rescue them. Joseph knew this because God had promised to Abraham by covenant. And when God finally brought Israel out of Egypt, Joseph wanted to go along for the ride. So he made his brothers swear that they would bury his bones in the promised land. The Israelites kept their promise, carrying Joseph's bones all the way through the wilderness until finally they were laid to rest in the family burial plot at Shechem, according to Joshua 24:32. What that internment proved was that Joseph trusted in the right God, the God who kept his promise to rescue Israel. And anyone who needs any kind of help should trust in the God of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses because he is always faithful to help his people. And a third truth is that God is always present to guide his people. Now, not only does he know which way is best, but he also goes along to make sure his people get there. And the way God led his people out of Egypt was miraculous, according to Exodus 13, 20 through 22. The only sensible way to account for what happened here is to accept that the fiery, cloudy pillar is a genuine divine miracle. By day, it was a bright column protecting the cloud. By night, its radiance appeared like fire. This amazing cloud served as Israel's guidance system. It went ahead of them to guide them in their way, according to verse 21 in our chapter. Wherever it moved, the people moved. What what the cloud represented was the very presence of God who was in the cloud and fire to light the way. The scripture states that the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud in verse 21 of our chapter. And this showed that he was with the people all the time, day and night. The pillar was a visible manifestation of his personal presence. Theologians call this a theophany, a God appearance. And when God showed up this way, he appears in a fiery cloud of glory, sometimes called the Shekinah. It is an outward display of God's inward glory. 
And sometimes we may wish that God would give us the same kind of guidance today. If only a bright cloud would lead us directly to the school that we might attend, the job we should take, or the person we should marry. And yet the truth is, is that God gives us all the divine guidance we need and in a much better form. He's given us the fire of his spirit, and now we have his glorious presence with us day and night. It is as if the column of cloud and the pillar of fire have come right inside of us. In fact, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit lives with you and will be in you in John 14, 17. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And since he's divine, the Bible declares that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, according to 1 Peter 4, 14. And now part of that spirit's glorious work is to give us direction for life. And Jesus promised that the spirit would guide us into all truth in John 16, 13. And now by the power of his holy presence, God is always with us to guide us. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave, and we've looked at Exodus chapter 13. Until tomorrow, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.